The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I you to turn with me in the Word of God this morning back to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, we considered the first portion of uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 last week as Nehemiah has been burdened to pray for the difficult situation in Jerusalem for four months and then the good hand of the Lord gave him an opportunity to make his request unto the king Artaxerxes and the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turneth it whithersoever he will and he answered the prayer of Nehemiah. Don't miss the point that Nehemiah specifically prayed to have mercy in the sight of the king and lo and behold the Lord gave him what? Mercy in the sight of the king, right? And uh, not just gave him mercy in the sight of the king for him to have a, a leave to go and to uh, lead the effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Also gave him letters of safe passage from from the king to the various provinces that he would go through in his way back to Jerusalem and then the Lord uh, guided the king to grant him his request to also give him the supplies and the timber for the rebuilding of the wall the amazing providential movement of the good hand of the Lord in allowing Nehemiah to to rebuild this effort so here we'd like to pick up today Nehemiah chapter 2 we'll read in verse 9 through the end of the chapter Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 9 then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters and now the king has sent captains of the army and horsemen with me and when Sambalath <clears throat> the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite heard of it it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days, and I rose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well into the dung port and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went out to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned and the rulers knew not whether I went or what I did neither had I as yet told it to the Jews nor to the priest nor to the nobles nor to the rulers nor to the rest that did the work then said I unto them <coughs> ye see the distress that we are in how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. And then I told them of the good hand of my God, which was upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me, and they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. 
So Nehemiah has received his letters from the king with approval to go through the various <coughs> provinces and returning back to Jerusalem. And this ends up being from when he leaves Shushan the palace to when he re- arrives in Jerusalem, ends up being about a three-month journey. So just to kind of give you the timeline again, he heard about this, uh, that the walls being broken down in the ninth month, and then he brings his request before the king in the first month, so he prayed for about four months. Then, fast-forwarding, and we're going to back up a little bit, fast-forwarding, they complete the work in only 52 days in the sixth month, so that means he arrived in the fourth month, right? So if he left in the first month and he arrived in the fourth month, that means it was about a three-month journey. Three-month journey. And this was probably about 900 miles from Shushan, the palace, back to Jerusalem. And Brother Joel, I know you made a trip from West Texas. About 900 miles is from Ackerman to Muleshoe, Texas. That's a 13-hour drive straight through. And if you're making that drive, it's probably going to end up being a 15, 16-hour drive. So mm-hmm. if you ever had a drive like that, that's, that's a pretty grueling drive just to drive it. Mm-hmm. But they're making a trip through the desert with camels, with a military escort, and a whole bunch of wood, right? Remember, he's taking all this timber back. So they have this huge caravan that's going through the desert traveling over 900 miles and took them three months to get there. So then the Babylonian, or excuse me, the Persian Empire uh, was kind of similar to the way the Roman Empire was structured in, the, in that um, the individual local province had mostly authority in their local area, but they just had, sub- had to submit to the authority ultimately of the Persian king and then pay taxes to the king. So you have these little bitty, very similar to Jerusalem, you have these very independent areas that are used to kind of ruling their own little area, they just submit and they pay taxes to the Persian empire. So anyway, there were a lot of various provinces that they had to go through and all of them were almost united in hating the Jews, right? That's why he asked for this seal from the king that when I arrive in all these various provinces and they find out that I'm a Jew going back to Jerusalem, the first inclination would be at a minimum not to help me and maybe even to kill me. But when he shows up with a military escort and a letter from the king, obviously now he's going to have the full resources of the Persian Empire at his disposal as he's passing through that province. So he makes this journey back to Jerusalem, goes through all these various provinces and then as he gets closer to Jerusalem he goes through the areas that are controlled by the primary enemies of this rebuilding effort and the primary enemies of the Jews here in this account Sambalat and Tobiah and Sambalat was a ruler in an area of the province a little north of Judah kind of more to the Samaria area <coughs> and Tobiah was a ruler to the east so they most likely would have been coming directly through Tobiah's area as they're entering into Jerusalem, coming in from the east. So <clears throat> he is going back to Jerusalem with this military escort, and they go through Sambalat and Tobiah's areas of, of rule, and they heard it. They came and showed the letter of approval from the king uh, so they could pass through their particular area. And this just shows you how how stark of a contrast there is between darkness and light and the wicked and God's people. I mean, Sambalat and Tobiah, they heard of it, and it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. I mean, it bothered them They hated that there was a man that was coming to do anything good for their enemies. Uh, Later on there in verse 19, you saw that the first, uh, and later messages, Lord willing, will will kind of look at the natural pattern of persecution and the natural pattern of the way that Satan tries to distract God's people from 
uh, works in the kingdom. And it always starts out small. And the, the first one is ridicule and mocking and scorning. That's what they did in verse 19. They arrive and they find out what his plan is to do. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and saying, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Well, they're just throwing slander, right? Because they've already seen a letter from the king that he has approval to, for him to redo this effort. But what's the very first thing that, that the wicked will do to, to try to uh, discourage or distract God's people? The first thing is just simply mocking and ridicule, right? And unfortunately, many times just that works. I mean, I don't like being laughed at. You probably don't either, right? I don't like being the butt of the joke, and you probably don't like being laughed at either. So many times just that causes us to shirt back and, and uh, not press through with something we've been called to do. But, but Nehemiah has his, his eye on the prize. His eye is single. His eye is focused on this burden that the Lord has laid upon him. But <clears throat> Sambalat and Tobiah are exceedingly grieved that there's anyone showing up to help the people of God. And uh, that's why one of the most important themes here in the book of Nehemiah, in the midst of this rebuilding effort, and the Lord overrules this, you know, I've had on my mind a lot uh, from the book of Romans where, uh, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound and and Sambalat and Tobiah were trying to make sin abound but grace just consumed and much more abounded even their desire to quench this effort right so don't ever be discouraged when we see open doors understand it's a biblical principle that there will always be many adversaries when the Lord opens a great and effectual door and there, this is one of the most great ineffectual doors in all the Old Testament. So it's not surprising that Satan is galvanizing his forces primarily through Sambalat and Tobiah to try to discourage his people for the work. So now he arrives in Jerusalem, okay? <clears throat> he arrives in Jerusalem, and Nehemiah shows many great attributes of leadership. And here, he doesn't just show up and just tell the people um, Everything that, the, that happened, he does that three days later, but he doesn't just immediately go and, and uh, tell the people everything that uh, he's burdened to do and that the Lord has done. Instead, for three days, he doesn't say anything to anybody about what his true purpose is there and what his burden is, and he displays great wisdom in inspecting the wall for himself and realizing the reality of the situation because if the Lord is burdening me to lead this effort, I need to have an honest evaluation of exactly the real damage to this wall, right? So what he does is for three nights, <clears throat> he doesn't take anybody with him except for a few bodyguards and doesn't really tell them what he's doing either, but he goes and he inspects every single area of this wall. And after he inspects the wall and he knows the exact extent of the damage, then he goes back and he tells the people of the providential hand of God. And they are excited to follow through with what the Lord had burdened him to do. And they eventually say, let us rise up and build. They're all on board for this. Now, what I want us to focus on today <clears throat> is Nehemiah, again, shows great wisdom and leadership <clears throat> by inspecting the wall and having an honest evaluation of what the problems are and the areas that need the greatest work so he can have a effective and strategic plan to execute this. Now, obviously, the only way that this would work is not through his strategic plans, through the power and the providence of God, but he needs to have a plan, right? And the way that you have a plan is you honestly evaluate the situation that you're in. 
So fast forwarding a little bit, um, I want to give you a little bit of homework for next week. I want you to read uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 because we're probably not going to go verse by verse in Nehemiah chapter 3 because it, it's really just uh, a listing off of all the different people that worked on the wall. And if there's anything that you've probably noticed over the years, I'm not very skillful at pronouncing a bunch of Hebrew names. So I'm not just going to spend the whole Sunday mispronouncing names for you. Um, but the point of Nehemiah chapter 3 is it gives you the layout of the wall and the rebuilding effort, okay? And the point that is made there is the way that they rebuilt this wall. And remember how big this wall is, okay? Um, this is a wall around the entire city of Jerusalem. Most likely, no official figures, but I think it's reasonable to say, most likely a mile and a half long, okay? A mile and a half long, 25 feet tall and eight feet wide. Don't you think about that? A mile and a half long, 25 feet tall, eight feet wide, and they got this done in 52 days. Obviously only by the power of God, right? But how did that great of an effort get done in such a short period of time? Nehemiah was the one who was burdened by the Lord to be a leader, to galvanize the people. But understand, this did not get done because of Nehemiah. Okay? How did it get done? It got done by each person in the, in the portion across from their house. They worked on their portion of the wall that was across from their house to the best of, you know, I can't fix a mile and a half in 52 days. But what I can do is I can work really hard on 50 feet, right? I can work really hard on 52, on 50 feet for 52 days. And then when you have hundreds and thousands of people working really hard on their 50, 50 feet, next thing you know, the whole thing's done in 52 days, right? And what it highlights there in Nehemiah chapter three is that it, it went section by section that this person worked on this part of the wall, and then next to him, this person worked on this part of the wall, and then next to him worked on, this person worked on this portion of the wall, and many times in there it says it worked, they worked on the part of the wall against their own house. In other words, they just worked on the part of the wall where they lived, right? That was close to their house, and you see there, the men are highlighted, specific groups are highlighted, there are rulers that are highlighted, uh, you have sons and daughters that are helping, so they worked on their section of the wall as a family. It wasn't just one man doing it, the whole family was working on their section of the wall together. So the way that this was done, <clears throat> the way that this mighty providential work of the Lord was accomplished is by the individual diligence of each person focusing on their part of the wall. Okay? That's how this happened. Now, the first thing that Nehemiah did <clears throat> was he had an honest evaluation of the deficiencies and the holes and the areas that needed the most repairs in the midst of that wall. Now, what is the first step to rebuilding the wall? What's the first step to rebuilding the wall? It's to acknowledge the wall has to be rebuilt, right? Right? The first step to a positive change, the first step to repentance, is acknowledging there's a need for repentance, right? The first step for rebuilding is acknowledging that there's a need to be rebuilt. Let's go ahead and fast forward um, to the book of Malachi, <clears throat> okay? To the book of Malachi. And Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, <clears throat> and it really corresponds to the environment 
in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah remains as governor in Jerusalem for about 12 years, and then he goes back to Babylon for a period of time, or back to Shushan, rather. And in the absence of strong, godly leadership, which is always the case all throughout the Old Testament, right? In the absence of strong, godly leadership, the people revert back to what they were doing to start with, right? It's what you see in the time of the judges. They have a strong leader that's led by the Lord, and they had peace, and they do what they ought to do. The, the, the judge dies, and then they revert back to the mean. They revert back to what they were doing before. So what happens in uh, Nehemiah chapter 13 is that Nehemiah goes back to Persia for a period of time, and then he finds out all these problems that have uh, been initiated in Jerusalem in the absence and the vacuum of his strong, godly leadership, okay? So what do people do in the absence of strong, godly leadership? They just revert back to the mean and what they're used to always doing. So the, the book of Malachi uh, is referencing what happened later on in, in the book of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 13, but I think it's very reasonable to assume that this is the same type of attitude that these people had when Nehemiah showed up the first time, right? Because they immediately, and, and apparently from Nehemiah 13, it happened pretty quickly, they reverted back to these attitudes very, very quickly. And I think it's pretty evident that this is the type of attitude that the people had when Nehemiah arrived. So the first step, I want you to think about the kingdom of God. I want you to think about the church. And every single person in the kingdom of God and in the church, that's one of the emphases of the book of Nehemiah. When it goes to all these long, in-depth explanations and listing out of every individual person, it, it goes in great depth to list out all those people. Why does it do that? Because every single person is vitally important to the health in the church, uh, of the church and of the kingdom of God, right? And if you're, it's, it's uh, never so true that in, that in this metaphor and in this analogy, the church and the walls of Zion are only as strong as its weakest link, right? Satan is always looking for areas to exploit. And we all have areas in our lives, in our portion of the wall, that are broken, that have holes, that we need to have an honest evaluation that they need to be rebuilt. And if we don't acknowledge that, if we don't acknowledge that there is a need for us to strengthen our portion of the wall, and we have a area of weakness or an area of brokenness that we are unwilling to acknowledge, what that's doing is that is putting the whole church and the whole kingdom of God in danger because the wall is only as strong as its weakest link, right? It's only as strong as its weakest link. <clears throat> so the first step, the first step to rebuilding is to acknowledge there's a need to be rebuilt, right? Now, the real challenge, and I'm certainly not isolated from this. I'm sure you could probably say the same thing. The real challenge is having an honest evaluation of our current state and the brokenness of our individual walls. Now, some people feel that they have a spiritual gift to have inspections on other other people's portions of the wall. <laughs> well, you may be surprised to learn that spiritual gift is not articulated in the New Testament, right? <laughs> you, you being critical of someone else's life or you being critical of someone else's portion of the wall is not a spiritual gift that the Lord has given to his New Testament kingdom. My responsibility, my responsibility in the kingdom of God and in the church is to take care of my portion of the wall to the best of my ability and then hopefully set an example 
for others to follow. And there comes a time where we can speak the truth in love and encourage and maybe lovingly rebuke other people. But for the most part, for the most part, your responsibility is to handle your business to the best of your ability and set an example for other people to follow. Not for you to be constantly evaluating what you perceive to be the state of someone else's wall and constantly criticizing them. I mean, the Bible makes this very clear in uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, right? Judge not that you be not judged. And you want to focus on the moat, the little bit of speck that's in somebody else's eye. But for some reason, you ignore the beam that's sticking out of your own eye. Well, if you saw somebody walking around with a plank sticking out of their eye, would you have confidence in their vision? Right? Would, would you have confidence if they said that I see this in the distance? You wouldn't have very little confidence. You, would, you wouldn't have any confidence that I see something that's sitting right in front of my face. Why? Because clearly there's something that is obstructing your vision. Now, the real challenge <laughs> is to be able to look in the mirror and say, wow, there's a really big beam in my eye. <laughs> that's the challenge, isn't it? Um, I heard a brother say <coughs> in a meeting a few weekends ago, <coughs> he was talking about <coughs> excuse me, his uh, basketball coach, and um, I think he attributed this quote to his basketball coach. And uh, he said, I, can, I, I played basketball too, so I, I knew all the excuses that went around uh, when the coach was getting on everybody's case. And, uh, and the coach uh, said, that we are never as imaginative and creative as when we are trying to self-justify ourselves and come up with excuses. And boy, we can, you know, you may say that you don't have much of an imagination. <laughs> and I don't feel like I'm too imaginative. But we can all be very, very creative, right? <laughs> when we're coming up with excuses to self-justify ourselves. What's very difficult is looking in the mirror and acknowledging that this is an area that I need improvement in, right? That's difficult. There's a commercial uh, that's really funny. It's called The Woman with the Nail in Her Head. And uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's really funny. Um, that husband and the wife are on the couch, and the wife is saying, I just have this, this achy pain in my head, and it just and it doesn't go away. And the husband says, well, honey, I think it might be because you've got a nail in your head. And there's a literal nail sticking out of her forehead. And she said, no, 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 it's not about the nail. It's not about, you just need to listen to me. It's not about the nail. It's not about the nail. And he said, listen, honey, I really think that if you just took the nail out of your head, <laughs> I really think some of that pressure and pain in your head would get a little bit better. But for some reason, she had a problem acknowledging that the problem was the nail in her head, right? And you want to know what's really sad? It's one thing to it, to not see it. Maybe the bigger problem is to see the nail, right? To see the nail. And then say, that nail's not a problem. I mean, I'm having a throbbing pain in my head. I wonder what that could come from. It might be from the nail sticking out of your head. Could I please help you with it? No, no, no. The nail's not the problem, right? And, and that's very humorous. But that's exactly how we are in our nature, right? Because we always want to self-justify ourselves. What's very difficult is having an honest evaluation of my shortcomings. But I want to tell you, you can't grow. You can't grow unless you acknowledge the need for growth, and these are the areas that I need to focus on to grow, right? Now, in the book of Malachi, I believe, is very similar to the attitude of the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. And there in those seven churches, uh, seven letters to the churches of Asia, I don't think that those are necessarily distinct ages of time of the church, that each letter corresponds to an exact time period uh, of the church. However, I, I don't think it's any surprise that the last letter is the Laodicean letter that describes them as being lukewarm, and I believe uh, that very closely corresponds to 
the description of the church that we see as we get closer and closer to the second coming of the Lord. Now, what was the Laodicean church's problem? Their problem was is that they were poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. That was their problem. And they were lukewarm. But how did they perceive themselves? They perceived themselves, and the Holy Spirit says, Thou sayest. So what was their perception? When they looked in the mirror, when they had their self-evaluation, what was their evaluation of what they saw in the mirror? We are rich and increased with goods, and we have need of nothing. Right? That, that was their self-evaluation. What was the Lord's self-evaluation? You're poor, and wretched, and miserable, and blind. You're lukewarm, and you need to repent. You need to open the door of fellowship to Jesus Christ, and he'll come in and sup with him and, and uh, <clears throat> he with you. So I think the attitude of the Laodicean church is very similar to the attitude of the church as we get closer and closer and closer to the second coming of the Lord. And I believe it's very similar to this attitude of these people here in Malachi. And I don't miss the significance and the timing of this. <clears throat> Malachi is the very last portion of inspired scripture before the 400 silent years. These are the very last portions of inspired scripture before the first coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? And I believe the lessons that are taught in the book of Malachi are very, very similar to the conditions and the attitudes of the church that we will see in the church just before the Lord's second coming. Okay? So the book of Malachi is very, very applicable to us because, as we see, the general disposition of Christianity today, having this attitude, it says in the last days, that people will have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They, as it says in Isaiah, we want to eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, but we want to be called by your name to take away our report. We want to give the pretense of service to God, but we have a form of godliness, but we deny the power thereof. But the book of Malachi is very applicable to the attitude of the church as we get closer and closer and closer to the second coming of the Lord. Now, what was the problem with those people here in Malachi? They had shortcomings, but the biggest problem is they, they didn't have enough of an understanding to see what those were. In Malachi chapter 1 and in verse 6 and 7, the Lord says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. So God says, this is the reality of the situation, right? Thus saith the Lord. This is the reality of it. Now, what was their, the way that they interact with the Lord? I think this has a lot to do with some of the problems that probably crept up during this time period. When you lose a reverence of who God is, when you don't actively think about the fear of the Lord, the reverence of worshiping God, you begin to treat Him in a very flippant way. And when that attitude arises in your mind, it will eventually manifest itself in your actions. But look at the way that they are talking to the Lord. You want to talk about, this is disrespectful just between a parent and a, and a parent, a, a, a child and a parent, right? But they're talking back to the Lord like this, okay? Not only do they not, only do they not realize the reality of their shortcomings, but they have clearly lost a reverence and a fear of Jehovah God if, if in their mind they're talking back this disrespectfully to Jehovah God. So he's telling them, look, you are offering polluted bread <coughs> upon my altar. You're, you're, all the Old Testament <coughs> commands say that it's supposed to be a lamb without blemish, but instead you're offering me the lame and the speckled. You're, out, you're offering me all of the uh, all the leftovers. And it's not just that you're doing, it's in direct, it's not a matter of preference, it's not, no, it's in direct contradiction to the Word of God, right? He says these have to be without blemish. And they, and they not only were, were 
compromising and saying that we're going to offer these things, but they did not see a single problem with them doing the opposite of what God told them to do, right? That's it. That was pretty much Saul's idea. Remember when Saul was told to go, I think it was the Amalekites, and go destroy them and kill their king. Wipe them out. Wipe them out because of their ungodliness. And then, and then Samuel shows up and asks Saul, did you do what I told you? Oh, absolutely. I did exactly what, I, what you told me to do. And then Samuel said, well, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? Why is the king still alive? See, Saul had, had self-justified disobedience, right? He, he, he did the exact opposite of what God told him to do, but in his head, he thought that he hadn't done anything wrong. And boy, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be, right? When we are living in direct disobedience and we've self-justified in our mind that we're not doing anything wrong. That is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. So they are offering these lame and speckled and with blemish offerings to the Lord, which is in direct violation of the Word of God, right? Direct violation to the law. But what's their attitude? <clears throat> o priest that despise my name, in verse 6, <clears throat> And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? I mean, this is just a child disrespectfully back-talking their parent, isn't it? Wherein have we de despised your name? And, Jesus, and God says, you offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we offered polluted bread? What's the problem, Lord? I mean, you told us to give you an offering. We're giving you the offering. Now, it's the leftover stale bread. It's not the, it's not the unleavened bread. It's, it's our leftover uh, animals that we don't want anymore. Uh, and we're giving you the leftover. What's the problem, Lord? You told us to give an offering. We gave you an offering. What's the problem? Okay, chapter 2, verse 17. He condemns them for idolatry and then divorce. This is right on the heels of the divorce condemnation. And then it says in verse 17, You have <coughs> wearied the Lord <coughs> with your words. Yet ye say, okay, you're an idolatry. You are... Um, divorcing people without a cause, contrary to the, the covenant pattern that God established in marriage. And God's so tired of them, he's we they've wearied him. I mean, just like a parent, right? I'm tired of my kids not acting right and always back-talking. They, they've wearied me. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied you? I mean, what's the problem, Lord? What's the problem? We haven't done anything wrong. Even... One that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delighteth in them. Where is the God of judgment? Okay, uh, chapter 3. Now, they're, not, they're also disobeying the command of God to not bring tithes and offerings before the Lord in the manner that they're called to. <coughs> Even from the days of your father, you're gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I'll return unto you he's saying look you're not doing what you ought to do repent if you repent I'm going to return unto you what was their response to that what is their response to the call to repentance wherein shall we return we don't have what do we need to repent of what do we need to return of why because in their mind there's no problem they had totally self justified themselves to where they did not see a single problem. Verse 8. And this is the reality of the situation, of the substance of what they were doing. Will a man rob God? I mean, this is, this is the Lord's provision that he's provided for you, and he gave you a commandment for you to offer a portion of that back to him in worship. This is not yours to hoard. It's God's, and you're robbing God by not obeying his command to give him back what's already his. But ye say, wherein have we robbed God? You see, chapter 3 and then verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? <laughs> I mean, they're just, not only can they not acknowledge the reality of their shortcomings, they are being so disrespectful to Jehovah God, and they also don't see a single problem with how disrespectful they're talking to the Lord. What have we spoken so much against thee? Right? They can't evaluate 
the reality of the situation that they're in. Now, Nehemiah shows up, <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 13, and, and he gives them extreme clarity about the reality of their situation. And then he, he calls upon them to repent, and through that godly leadership coming back on the scene, they repent of many of these things under Nehemiah's leadership. But I think that's a very good example of our natural tendency. That's just part of the flesh, okay? That's just part of our carnal mind that still resides inside of us that even after we're born again, it's difficult for us to have an honest evaluation of our shortcomings and the areas that are holes in our portion of the wall that need repair, the areas that are broken. But I want to tell you, you are putting yourself and the entire church and the entire kingdom of God in danger if you do not, first of all, evaluate the areas of your wall that need work and then have a strategic plan to mend those broken areas of the wall, okay? But step number one to rebuilding is clearly to acknowledge that there's a need to be rebuilt. How sad would it be if Nehemiah showed up and the Lord had moved providentially in this way and he showed up and he explained to them, that's what ended up happening. They were so excited. Wow, you're telling me the Persian king not only let you come, but he, but he sent you a military escort and he, he gave you all of this material for us to... Wow, God must be on our side, right? And then they were excited and they were encouraged, encouraged and they said, let us rise up and let us build. Let us build. Now, what do you think would happen if Nehemiah showed up and the walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire and the people in Jerusalem would have said, what? What's the problem? We're, these walls are good. What are you talking about? This wall isn't broken. <laughs> I mean, the wall is, is flat on the ground. And they look at the wall, and they got used to broken, the broken wall so much, they tell Nehemiah, what are you talking about that? That wall's not broken. <laughs> no. The Lord allowed them to see not only is there areas that we need to rebuild, but I have moved by my spirit to give you a godly leader, to give you the encouragement and the leadership that you need to rebuild, right? So the first step was that they acknowledged that there was a need for rebuilding. And then what was their response, okay? Nehemiah <coughs> chapter 2 and in verse 17. Then said I unto them. So remember, he stayed silent for a while. He evaluated it. And Nehemiah, if he's going to be the, the leader of this effort, he needs to have firsthand knowledge of the reality of the situation of this wall, right? And now he has it. So now he, now he tells the people. He he's, understands the reality of the situation. And this really, I think, underscores the bold faith of Nehemiah because I think the more he evaluated it, <laughs> the more he realized this is an impossible task. Okay? I, I mean... The best case scenario, it might take us a couple years to get this done. I mean, you need to be realistic when you're making plans, right? Best case scenario, maybe we can get this done in a year or two. The Lord blessed me to get it done in 52 days, okay? Less than two months. But he evaluated <coughs> the need, and he also realized the only way this is going to get done is that if I have total buy-in and unity from everybody, right? The only way this is going to get, you know, what if, what if just the eastern, the people that lived on the eastern side of the city, they were all in, but the people that lived on the western side of the city ignored it? Well, it's only half a wall, isn't it, right? I mean, he needed the unity of the whole people to be fully bought in to what he was leading them to do. So he goes and he tells the people, yet I <coughs> said unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. You know, I kind of view these people very similar, 
maybe not as harsh, but you know how discouraged those Israelites were in Egypt when Moses showed up, right? They were in affliction. They were being persecuted by the Egyptians. And maybe not as severe because they're not necessarily being whipped for, you know, making bricks and all this stuff. But that's the type of environment that there was. And remember, even those people back in Israel, Moses shows up and he says, we're going to get you out of here, right? And it sounded really good for a little bit, but then things got a little bit more difficult and they turn on Moses, right? But these are people that are, I think, looking for something. You know, don't be surprised. This sounds simple, but I mean, this is how we are. Don't be surprised when God answers the prayer you're praying, right? Don't you know that these people had been saying, Lord, please bless us to get, you know, fix these walls and, and, and stop the persecution of the people around us. And, and Lord, please bless us to not be in such a horrible state. And then there's a man that shows up and says, not only has the Lord laid this on my heart, but he moved the heart of the Persian king, and I showed up with all these resources. Don't be surprised. Don't, don't look over when the God powerfully answers your prayer, right? I mean, that's what, that's what Nehemiah had been doing for four months. He's saying, Lord, please give me mercy on the side of the king, mercy on the side of the king, mercy on the side of the king. And then lo and behold, he had that opportunity, and the Lord gave him what? Surprise, surprise. Mercy in the side of the king, right? So I hope that these people looked at this and they said, man, this is what we've been praying for. This is what we've been praying for for years. And not only have we been praying for it and this one guy showing up by himself with a with an isolated burden, but the Persian king has given his approval for this. And when they heard all that, they said, the Lord is in this. And then the people together, listen, Great things don't happen in the kingdom by one person, okay? This did not happen because of Nehemiah. The Lord used Nehemiah in a special way, but it happened because of the unity of all the people together. That's how great things happen in the kingdom, okay? And what was their unified response? Verse 18, let us rise up and build, (laughs) right? Now they're excited. Because they know that the Lord is in this. And then the people are getting excited, right? <clears throat> the people see the hand of the Lord on the situation. And, and God is going to bless us to rebuild this wall. And then what does Satan immediately do? He moves in Sambalat and Tobiah to try to throw some cold water on that in the form of ridicule and mocking. And thankfully, the people probably weren't fully on board yet. <coughs> So Nehemiah stands up and speaks on behalf of them. And he says, I'm ignoring what you have to say, your ridicule and your mocking. And he said, verse 20, Nehemiah stands up and answered them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us, right? God's going to bless us. And yes, Satan may nip at our heels, but always, Always, always. When we're trusting the Lord, he will always crush the head of the serpent. (laughs) He did it on the cross, right? But even in a daily basis, in a providential way, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. We draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to us. Because if if you've drawn nigh to God, Satan doesn't want to be that close to Jesus. Okay? He's going to run away from you. And not only is Satan's head crushed in an eternal sense... When we trust God, he will crush Satan's head on a daily basis. Don't you doubt that? He will crush Satan's head on a daily basis. So, Nehemiah stood up and said, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. I don't care what you have to say. Sam Blatt and Tobiah, mock us all you want. We're mocking them 52 days later, right? (laughs) after the Lord had blessed them. And I I like how he closes this. The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But ye, talking about Sambalai and Tobiah, ye have no portion nor right nor memorial in Jerusalem. In other words, it doesn't matter what you have to say, right? He's essentially saying, not today, Satan. 
Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. It, it doesn't matter what you have to say. Why? Because this is not your work. You're not, you have no right in Jerusalem. You have no portion in Jerusalem. And we're not going to listen to the naysayers. Instead, we're going to trust the God of heaven to prosper us. <clears throat> and then the next chapter, it articulates each individual portion of the wall. This person worked from this point to this point, and then right beside him was this person who worked from this point to this point, and then this point to this point, over against their own house, families working together. And then, by the providential blessing and power and movement of God, 52 days later, they rebuilt this whole wall. Okay? How did that happen? How did that happen? It happened by the power of God, but the power of God moved through the individual diligence of every person to handle their portion of the wall. And you know what? At the end of the day, I can encourage you, but all I can really do is handle my portion of the wall to the best of my ability. And they also did it in families. So, yes, these... these um, metrics kind of keep growing. I have my individual portion, then I have my family, then I have and another thing is that the only thing boy, I, I pray for the kingdom of God as a whole. I pray for all the churches in America and across the world but you know what? The only area that I can really influence is just this portion of the kingdom. Okay? And boy, it breaks my heart to see other churches that are struggling and in in my, at least in my assessment, they need a man of godly leadership to show them their shortcomings so they can rebuild their portion of the wall. But you know what? I just have to trust the Holy Spirit to raise up men to minister to those areas. I can't control that. I can't control that. But what I can do is the area, the measure that I've been given, and that measure is different for different people, the measure that I've been given in my portion of the wall, I want to do the very best I can with the measure of the wall that I've been entrusted with. And that happens in our individual lives, it happens in our families, and it happens in our local church body. Okay? And we just pray that the Lord, and boy, this is a scary prayer to pray, <laughs> but you need to pray it. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. I, I don't want to live in self-justification ignorance of my shortcomings that are going to hurt me and hurt others in the long run. Lord, give me clarity of vision of what my shortcomings are and then give me the courage and the wisdom and the grace to address those so that my portion of the walk can be as strong as possible. And then when my area is strong, that strengthens the church as a whole, the kingdom as a whole, right? And that's our prayer, <clears throat> that God would bless us to be diligent in service to Him in our portion of the wall. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.